0: The reading this morning is, uh, continues our journey in Acts we're taking as a church. This is the church in action. And the reason we were doing this between Christmas and Easter is, remember, is to really just help us get out of the, the COVID slumbers and start to think a bit about what a church in action needs to look like <clears throat> and make sure we learn from what we have here in scripture, which is an example of the first church in action. And that's what we're doing today. We're continuing that journey. We're slightly out of sequence today as well, because I went away to see my son last week, so Lorraine did her one early, and I'm doing my one late, which means that Lorraine was in the latter heart of chapter 8, and I'm in the beginning of chapter 8, but that aside, we're doing fine. We're doing fine. So the reading this morning comes from chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is a divine power known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given a laying on of the Apostle's hand, he offered them money and said, give them also, give me also this ability so that everybody on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, he said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered him, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So there we have it, this uh, passage called Simon the Sorcerer. Now, I have to be, you know, that's my namesake, so I'm going to have to be pretty careful. (laughs) This is a sort of, I I think I, I I was hoping maybe Lorraine might pick this passage up, but she didn't, she was very clear, but you keep that. And uh, so, uh, let's see, here we go. First of all, before we look at it, I, I just want to step back and I just want to remind us of what's happening in this part of Acts, because I think it's quite important to see this. So I apologize if there's any duplication for what Lorraine may have said last week. If we go back to chapter 7, chapter before, chapter 7 records Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, if you remember, the Jewish ruling council, a speech that so inflames their rage that it ends up with him being stoned to death for what he has said making him the church's first martyr. A martyr, someone who was willing to choose death rather than deny their faith. Stephen's Stephen's faith in Jesus was clearly more precious to him even than life. And following that event, the church in this this part of the Book of Acts, which has initially been gathered together, as it were, around the Holy Spirit and the work of the apostles and whatever around Pentecost, is now scattered into the the four winds, as it were, by persecution. We read in the first verse of chapter 8, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And it was a persecution actually led, we are told, by the Pharisee called Saul, a man who in the second part of the book of Acts, chapter 10 onwards, would amazingly become one of the church's greatest defenders, and in time, a martyr himself. But it's right at this pivotal point, and and as it were, if you look at the book of Acts, there's almost like a hinge at this part in, in in chapter 10, really, it's a hinge. And Luke introduces, <clears throat> right before this, three stories of conversion, confessions of faith. He introduces the one we just read, which is Simon the Sorcerer. He then follows that immediately by the passage Lorraine would have spoken on last week, which is Philip and the Ethiopian. And immediately, even after that, he follows that with Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. So there's something very intentional happening in Luke as the author. You know, he's putting these three things down on paper just at this pivot point as the church as it were scatters into the world. Each of those conversion experiences record the different experiences of three very different individuals who make confessions of faith in the lordship of Jesus as the Christ. And as I say, I think Luke does this intentionally at this pivot point in the book. It's a time when persecution means that the the church is going to be scattered and sent out, no longer just ministering primarily to Jews in Jerusalem, people who knew the scriptures, but a church that's then been (coughs) sent out into the wider world, into a much more culturally mixed Gentile world. The gospel message, as we go forward, is going to be increasingly delivered to those who are no longer just familiar with the Jewish scriptures. Instead, it's going to be spoken to those <clears throat> from a whole variety of different cultural backgrounds and contexts. And therefore, the way they hear it and the way they respond to it is also going to change. And I think Luke provides these three examples here as a bit of a warning to the church that's going to be scattered. that they need to be very discerning as they look to grow the church and take new converts into the church. They need to be very careful. They don't just observe, you know, people who are following the religious observance, the the externals, as it were, of faith. But they also are more discerning and look deeper at how people respond to their acceptance of the gospel. I think he's aware, Luke is aware, that people choose to follow Jesus, but when they do so, they can do so for a whole variety of reasons some of which are founded on a very genuine desire just to lay down our lives and follow him, as in that song, I Surrender All, follow him for his sake, not for ours. But for some, it's much more questionable, and it can be much more motivated by other things, like personal gain, maybe fame or reward even. I think what Luke is doing here with this narrative on Simon the Sorcerer he's giving us an example of someone who on the face of it believed and was even baptised and yet as the story develops it becomes fairly clear they've done this more for personal gain than actually genuine servant-hearted following of Christ could someone get me a little glass of water do you mind someone near the back I'm a bit croaky this morning so I'm gonna read, I uh, just reread. So I'm gonna look at this in three pieces. One is the confession of faith and what we can learn from that as people do confess faith in Christ. The second is the role of the Spirit, and the last one is the fruit. You know, do we see fruit as people come to Christ? So reading just the first couple of verses first, and I think I've got my here. <clears throat> Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people high and low gave him their attention and followed him. Thank you very much, Colonel. Thank you. I appreciate it. <clears throat> And when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized also. Now, it's a very common theme, I think, in Scripture that whenever God sows <clears throat> true believers into the church, then Satan isn't very far behind sowing his counterfeits too. I think mean, Jesus' teaching of the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13 makes that very point. And it's also something, as we look at the New Testament, we see it from John the Baptist of the, and of Jesus' ministry and also the ministry of Paul. There's always this war, as it were, going on in this sense. The apostles Peter and John, who came down then to join Philip in Samaria, uh, pick these, this up in their own writings. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Peter says, <clears throat> "Be controlled and alert, self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour." And John, in one of his letters, in 2 John, wrote, "Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone into the world." You know, Peter describes the enemy as a hungry lion as it were, prowling around, looking to devour. And maybe when that approach fails, John describes him more as a serpent, someone who comes in seeking to pretend what they are not. And I think in this story we have this morning, Satan's tool, in this case, was this highly charismatic sorcerer named Simon, maybe more the serpent than a lion, someone who worked evil in the church from the inside out. the word in verses 9 and 11 which is translated amazed means like astounded, confounded and the people were amazed at the things that Simon did and they believed what he was doing but he was almost godlike but Simon used his magic to magnify himself he used his sorcery to glorify himself but when Philip returns up on the scene, regardless of Simon's miracles, it seems that Philip, Philip, as he declares the gospel message, people come across to him, and Simon is included in that and is baptized. But I think we need to just reflect maybe on his motives and how that might also reflect into the church today. <clears throat> If you think about our current contacts, we're always delighted when someone confesses faith in Christ, quite rightly so, quite rightly so. But I think we also need to sometimes temper our exuberance with wisdom and discernment. We need to be aware that a confession of faith can sometimes be superficial, it can sometimes be ill-informed or just premature what we need to do here in this example I think is to test by asking another question what was the basis of Simon's faith and if we read the scripture there his faith appears to be not so much on the word of God as we saw we'll see later with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch or it wasn't so much about Saul who was stopped in his tracks as it were by the presence of Jesus himself instead Simon seems to be more attracted by the miracles that he saw Philip perform. And he longs for the personal fame and the prestige and the celebrity status that that could bring him. There's no evidence in the scripture that Simon repented of or renounced his former way of life. Instead, he remained infatuated with the power and the prestige the miracles could bring him. Simon's confession of faith was not so much centred on Jesus but on himself. His faith was more like that of the people of Jerusalem who, who witnessing our Lord's miracles only asked him for more and for more. They focused on the miraculous and failed to look beyond them to Jesus and his true identity as the Christ. So Simon continues to follow Philip around not so much to hear the word of God and grow in Christ, to live in the light and express it in his own life, but to just see the miracles and hopefully learn how they might be done by him. As I say, when we look at Simon's confession of faith from the outside, it looks okay. You know, he said he believed and he was baptised, but I think it's a confession of faith which is more a matter of religious conformance, for it seems that his heart was unchanged. And his presence amongst the believers was, in that sense, a lie. It was a sham. And then we come to the visit of Peter and John. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now it's important to note obviously that the <clears throat> Samaritans did not appear to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when they first believed. This is one of the only passages of Scripture where it seems that it was necessary for two of the Apostles, Peter and John, to come from Jerusalem to put their hands on the converts in order to, as it were, impart to them the gift of the Spirit. And we might wonder by that and be puzzled by it. But one way I look at that and understand it is that in this situation, which is this unique pivot point of the, the Church, as it were, moving out of Jerusalem into the world, God wanted to keep the Samaritan believers united with the Church in Jerusalem. If you think about it, Jesus had given Peter the keys of the kingdom which meant that Peter had the privilege of, of the, were opening the door of faith to others as is recorded in, uh, in Pen- Pentecost in, Act- in Acts he does also now this same deed to those in Samaria and later in Acts chapter 10 he opens that door of faith to the Gentile world as well starting with the centurion, Cornelius, and his family. So Acts, although it contains examples where the Holy Spirit is given before baptism, here the Spirit is received only after uh, baptism and laying on of hands. Now, some people argue from either perspective, but I think the thing to note is that one way or another, the reception of the Spirit and, and the from fruit of the spirit is a clear indication of authentic Christian faith and rebirth into his name. The gift of the spirit equips us for a life following Jesus and the reception of that gift only becomes verified is only discerned as we observe what follows in an individual's life it isn't just our confession of faith and going through religious Processes, as it were, is obviously then how that faith continues to get expressed. We know imperfectly, but it still should be struggling to get out of us into the world. And we see nothing in this text that indicates Simon ever received the Spirit. In fact, the con- to the contrary, he seems to demonstrate no change of heart and no fruit. And we see this quite clearly in the last reading. We read in verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Spirit. The wickedness of Simon's heart was fully revealed, his motives became clear and that was revealed by the ministry of the two apostles. He only wanted to perform miracles He wanted the power. He wanted the celebrity status of conveying the gift of the Spirit onto others. He wanted to own it. But Peter's words to Simon give every indication that Peter did not see Simon as a converted man. He said to him, may your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. That word, thought, in verse 22, means to plot, to scheme, and it's a negative word. It's a sense of undermining. The fact that Peter saw Simon as full of of bitterness and captive to sin would indicate that he did not see him as someone who had truly been born again in Christ. And Simon's response to these words, this severe warning, was not that encouraging either. Simon just said to him, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Even at the last here, he seems more concerned about getting out of his current predicament in the short term than getting right with God for good. There is no evidence that he either repented or sought forgiveness. He was a sinner who only wanted the prayers of others when he was in a corner, but who did not know how to pray for himself before a personal, merciful, compassionate God. I think this story shows us, sadly, how close a person can come to salvation and yet not be truly saved. Simon heard the gospel, he saw the miracles, he professed faith, he was baptized, but sadly, he was never really born again. I think when comparing these three examples of conversion stories, what we see here in this first example Luke gives us is one of Satan's clever counterfeits and had not Peter discerned this and exposed this he would have been just accepted into the church as a member of that church and no doubt in time would discern his wickedness and cause disunity in the whole body of the church so really just listening to that and just coming back again the question always is so what How does that apply to the church today, to a church that wants to grow? Well, clearly we see there a confession of faith that is not all that it initially seems. I think Luke, first and foremost, wants to remind the churches of the importance of spiritual discernment as they seek to gather the loss and grow the church. We need not be judgmental but we need to be discerning. We might presently feel that all we need in this church is for more people to come into the church, and in one sense that is true. But we need to be wise and discerning, especially when considering individuals who wish to, are confessing faith and wish to come into membership, and certainly when you are considering people for leadership in the church. We may not all be called to be martyred for our faith, but we are all called and equipped by the Spirit to live for God's glory, not ours. Jesus reminded his disciples in Matthew 7 that the people who follow him will be known by their fruit. I think Luke also reminds us that competition or personal pride, the need to be seen as better than others around us, is always a warning sign. In church. Instead of coveting the gifts of others, we should seek instead to use the gifts that we have been given already and use them well for God's glory. Growing a church is not just about adding numbers, we do need to be wise gatekeepers too. So, the last words on this I've drawn from James, um, James chapter 3. The Apostle James wrote this, these words. He said, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it, don't deny the truth. But such wisdom does not come from heaven, it is earthly, it is unspiritual. It is of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, the wisdom of the Spirit, is first of all pure, and it's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit impartial and sincere those words of James I think close this message with wise counsel for the discerning church let us just pray for a minute Father we want to thank you for the church that has gathered here this morning and we recognize that you welcome everybody into your midst Lord, we just thank you for your spirit that is so merciful and compassionate and open to us all. Lord, build